as Chris was talking and reviewing Ephesians 1, my mind was going all kinds of places in reference to our time that we've had in this great book and thinking back onto some of the things that I've thought about over the years and what we're about to get into tonight. And Chris had mentioned the high view of God, that we ought to have a high view of God in all that we do, that Ephesians chapter 1 clearly shows the sovereign hand of God in all things, and particularly in bringing us into the family of His so that we are children of His. And that is a non-negotiable for us as Christians, that we, that we must have a high view of God. God cannot be this mamby-pamby cosmic killjoy or cosmic genie that only makes our life better. He is our Father. He is our King. He is the one in whom we obey. He is the absolute authority in our life. We must have a high view of God. And we have a high view of God in that way because God has chosen us into His family, and therefore we have a high view of the Scriptures. They are the authoritative Word of God, and so we look to those for our life and godliness as God has given them to us. The other thing that we ought to have is a right view of man. Man in our world has a wrong view of man. They have a distorted view of man. And for us in the Christian realm, if we're genuine believers in Jesus Christ, those who look to the Word of God and understand the Word of God as God has given it to us, and we are working to understand the mind of God as God intended to us to know Him, then we come away with a right understanding of man. And this is where we're going to go tonight. Theologically, from the sovereignty of God to the reality of who man is. And so I want you to open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Let me read for us from this wonderful passage, beginning in verse 1 and reading all the way down to verse 10, just to frame our thinking. The Apostle Paul says to the Ephesian believers, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for our time tonight. Thank You for each opportunity we have to open Your Word together. 
to look intently at what you have said, what you are telling us about our relationship with you and how we are to live. We thank you that your word penetrates into our hearts, convicts us where we need to, and that it changes us as we submit ourselves to your word by the power of your spirit. So we thank you for that, Lord, tonight as we think about the theological truths here, the deep, rich wonder in which you define mankind. May we resonate with that in our own hearts, thinking about our own life and the reality and joy that we have in Christ Jesus because of your grace. So you be honored through this, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Some 45 years ago, when I was just a young lad, my father and I had the opportunity to hike uh, to the top of the highest peak in the continental United States. It's called Mount Whitney. It's 14,494 feet in altitude. And at the top, on a clear day, you can see hundreds and hundreds of miles across the plains of California and out into the deserts beyond that. It's really a beautiful place, one of the most beautiful places on earth, I think. The weather at the top is oftentimes crisp. It can be even snowing in the middle of July at the top. It's cool when you are there. It seems as if when you are there, you're on top of the world as you look over the vastness of the valleys that fall steeply below it. And ironically, about 100 miles from that highest point in the continental U.S. is another place that is the exact opposite. It is the lowest point. It's a place that's 230 feet below sea level known as Death Valley. And of course, we know it's one of the hottest places on earth. And so just in a short distance of geographical distance, you find what can be at times one of the coldest places and yet one of the hottest places. And it's amazing that in just that short distance, God has given us a great contrast geographically. You go from the highest heights to the lowest of lows. And yet, in the same way, here we are in the book of Ephesians, and we are coming to that very same contrast. We are moving from the peaks of God's majestic glory that we saw through all that He has given to us supernaturally as He has attached us to His Son by His own caring and loving hand. And we are coming to the depths of what we were before that ever took place. If we are going to live for God, as Paul is desiring the Ephesian believers, as the implications are for us even this day, if we're going to live for God as God has intended us to live, then we have to see and understand the depth from which God has taken us. Just as much as we understand who God is, we need to understand who we are. And so in many ways, this is really a grim reminder it's a sobering picture of the need of all men. Every human being, everywhere, 
in all of the earth, this is a reminder to know that without Jesus Christ, there is no spiritual life. There is no heights of eternal glory for those who are outside of Jesus Christ. There is only an eternity of hell awaiting them. There is only the depths of the eternal bearing of God's wrath upon them. And therefore, this is to be for us as Christians a great motivation for living for Christ. Nothing shines more brighter in what God has given us than lying on the backdrop of our own deadness before we knew God. This is a glimpse at spiritual death valley. Notice notice what Paul says. Coming off all of the grand peaks of the glory of God and all that we have in Jesus Christ, praying that our eyes might be enlightened, praying that we would know the calling and the riches of the glory of His inheritance in us, the surpassing greatness of His power that we have in order to do what He has called us to do. Lying on that backdrop is what Paul says in verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin. As you stand at the top of Mount Whitney, the highest point, there's no trees up there. Trees end about 9,000 feet. You go up higher to the top. And if the altitude doesn't make you sick, it's beautiful to be up there. It's like being on the top of the largest rock pile you've ever seen. And right at the edge of it is a 3,000 foot cliff that drops straight down. This is the 3,000 foot cliff. There is no more horrific words in all of the Bible than this declaration by God through the mouth of the Apostle Paul as to the absolute condition of the natural soul of man. This is the soul of man without Jesus Christ. And you and I must understand as we begin that the grammar used here by the Apostle Paul is not speaking of some kind of temporal sickness. The use of the wording here is not referring to some momentary lapse in effort or ability. It is not referring to some kind of dislike for one thing over another thing. It is clear from the grammar of the Apostle Paul as he's inspired by the Spirit of God to pen these words that this is the absolute spiritual condition of all people without Jesus Christ. All people are spiritually dead. They are necros. That's the word Paul says, and you were dead. Oh, there's a great vast difference between what we are and what we were. You were dead. That is a settled condition. The Apostle Paul does not mean that all people are in some kind of danger of spiritual death. 
watch out because death is on the precipice and you are in danger of finding death. That is not what the Apostle Paul is saying. He means that all people are in a state of being of actual spiritual death. He's not saying that we become spiritually dead at some time in our lives. He is saying that we are in that state of spiritual deadness from the very beginning of our existence in time. And, and you notice that he does not mention how it is that we live to get into that condition. It doesn't mention that you must live in a certain kind of way in order to enter into this condition. He simply and profoundly states that this is our condition and it has nothing to do with the way we live. Our condition has to do with the fact that we are dead spiritually. Even though we sit here as physically living beings, we are spiritually dead without Jesus Christ. We are by nature dead to God. And spiritual death is absolute. It is a state of being. And we have to understand this. We have to understand the extent of it. If we do not understand the extent of it, we forget what we were saved from. We lose sight of the reality of the majestic glory of the peaks of God that we have been brought up to. And we have to understand its, its extent. We have to realize that this is not just a certain kind of person that is dead. This is not a certain group of people that is dead. The Apostle Paul is not writing to the Ephesians and saying, hey, little Ephesian believers, you realize in some time past, you as a group of people, you were dead. No, he's not saying that. He's referring to all people. That's exactly why he says in verse 3, among them. Who's the them? The dead one. Among them, we too all formerly lived. It's not just you, it's us. It's all of us. This is our condition without Jesus Christ. So spiritual death is an absolute, but it is not simply an absolute of all men. It is a universal absolute of all men. So Let us begin with that. That God, through the Apostle Paul, is not talking about some portion of society that is deemed in some way to be the dregs of life and therefore they are equated with those who are dead. As we will see, they are continually under the wrath of God. Verse 3 says that. Not only were we dead, but we were by nature children of wrath. This is all of humanity. All of humanity. It is absolute. It is universal. Old and young alike are dead. We hear a lot today in the news about the elites and the non-elites, those who make the rules and those who do not make the rules. It does not matter whether you're an elite or a non-elite, you are, without Christ, dead. 
Doesn't matter if you're rich or poor economically, you are dead. Doesn't matter if you're living in a first world country or third world country or any kind of numbered country in between, you are spiritually dead without Jesus Christ. Doesn't matter if you have a good education or you're non-educated, you are spiritually dead. Doesn't matter if you're churched or unchurched. Does not matter the absolute universal reality of mankind here in verse 1 is simply that fact, that the absolute reality is that each and every person is in a spiritual condition of death apart from Jesus Christ. Is it any wonder that the Apostle Paul would tell us that it was the very blessing of God Himself to bless us with the reality that He chose us. Apart from Jesus Christ, we are dead and there are no exceptions. And the implication of that reality is that being dead, we can do nothing physically, we can do nothing spiritually to remedy or to bring help to our deadness. This seems to be confusing to some within evangelicalism today, particularly when it comes to evangelism. We we somehow think that in some kind of way or in some manufactured system in some kind of way or that something upon us and something within us has some kind of way to, to bring life to the deadness of man. But that is not true. Why? For this one simple fact. The dead cannot do anything except be dead. That is what Paul is talking about here. Our condition before we were saved was to live as we were. Dead. You were dead. Spiritually dead must be saved if their deadness is to be remedied. You say, saved from what? Saved from the penalty of our guilt before God because of our trespasses and sins. And you were dead not by doing your trespasses and sins. You were dead in them. In them. Here's how the late Jonathan Edwards described his understanding of this reality. He said, quote, the problem is not with the will itself. What he meant by that is the problem is not with the will only. It's not simply with the will. Of course, we have books in the library, The Bondage of the Will, Martin Luther, the late Martin Luther, who we would quote and speak of wrote a book called The Bondage of the Will, that the will is under bondage to sinfulness. And there is a sense of truth to that. Jonathan Edwards says the problem is not with the will itself, since the will is simply the mind choosing what the mind deems best. The problem is with man's moral nature, which is opposed to God. And with the sinful motives that flow from that corrupt nature. He goes on to say, 
the will is always free. We always choose what we judge best in a given situation. But as one who is spiritually dead, we always judge wrongly. What is he saying? He said, dead people always choose deadness. We, we have the freedom to live within the box of our deadness, but we always choose that which is dead. We think God is undesirable, and therefore we always resist Him and always reject the Gospel. Left to ourselves, this is what we do, because that's what deadness does. In other words, being spiritually dead means that while you are free to come to God, in other words, God says, come to me. God stands in the graveyard of humanity, in the spiritually dead graveyard of humanity, and says, come to me, and you're free to come. You will not by your very nature. Why? Because it is by nature that you reject God. And so, spiritual death valley is a deceptive and wicked place. Why? Because while it is filled with the dead, the dead walk around spiritual death valley in active sin. They are dead toward God. And yet alive in wickedness. So, spiritual death characterizes life before salvation in Christ. You were dead. There's no clearer a statement of that condition than right here in verse 1. This is, as I said, spiritual death valley. Right there between the end of verse 23 as we have it in our Bibles and this verse in verse 1 is the greatest chasm and valley that could be crossed. This is spiritual death valley. In fact, the Bible declares to us that this is our condition at birth. You say, where does it declare that? Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death. You say, that doesn't sound like a verse that declares it from birth. Well, that verse is telling us that because man is born in sin, he is born to death. In other words, man does not become spiritually dead because he sins. No, he sins because by nature he is already spiritually dead. Sin is just what dead things do. Sin is the condition of the soul without Christ. And therefore we are spiritually dead and so we sin. That is our absolute, that is our universal condition at birth. Well, think about it now as we, as we contemplate the majestic heights of what God has given us in Jesus Christ of chapter 1. Think about it, if if you're here tonight and you are here as a believer in Jesus Christ, as someone who has embraced Jesus Christ by faith, 
Spiritual death was your past condition. You were dead. And it is the current condition of all who do not currently believe unto salvation. That is their condition. Why? Because without Jesus Christ, we are spiritual zombies. We are the walking dead. Acting as if we live among the heights of Mount Whitney. Acting as if we are there at the top of the peaks looking out over the majestic beauty when we actually live in spiritual death valley. We're completely blind to the reality of eternal life in Jesus Christ as dead people. And we have no natural ability, get this, as dead, spiritually dead, we have no natural ability to hear spiritual truth or come to Christ. Let me say that again. As dead people, we have no natural ability to hear the truth. My wife and I were talking about this as we were driving to church today in particular in reality to the things of evangelism and thinking that if we're just nice to people, if we're just have this atmosphere in which it's inviting to people in some kind of strange way, that that will open the door for them to be saved. No, it won't. No, it won't. Why? Because they have no natural ability to hear spiritual truth. They cannot hear it. It is not inviting to them. They do not want it. In fact, they reject God by nature. They cannot come to Christ. And so, as John Stott says, we should not hesitate to reaffirm that a life without God, however physically fit and mentally alert that person may be, they are still a living death. And those who live it are dead even while they are living. They're dead. As a pastor, I've been in the presence of many physically dead people. Not to be morbid, but one of the first indicators of a person in their deadness physically is that they have no capacity to respond to any kind of outside stimuli upon them. Doesn't matter what somebody does to them. Doesn't matter how many things they bring upon the scene, they do not react to it. They don't respond to sounds, they don't respond to smell, they do not even respond to pain. Why? Because they are absolutely unable to do that. They cannot by nature. They are dead. This is the way it is, beloved, with spiritual death. There is no ability in a person to respond. The person who is spiritually dead has no life from which they can respond to spiritual truth. None. No capacity to live a spiritual life. And so, it doesn't matter what kind of outer stimuli you might bring to the equation. There is no amount of words, there is no amount of evidence that you can bring to a situation, there is no amount of care and concern that you can bring that will conjure up in them some kind of spiritual response. 
It does not come from you. It does not come from us. They are dead to the things of the Spirit. And therefore they are dead to life. They are the living dead who do not realize that they are dead. This is who we were. Paul wants us to understand that. Paul wants to get this across to the Ephesian believers. And this is why he starts this very section this way. You cannot understand verses 8 and 9 until you realize the reality of the graveyard you were in. This was your condition. You were in this condition of deadness. And so the problem with mankind is not a moral problem. It is not that he cannot get along with his own fellow man. That's not his problem. If we just start to get along with one another, things will be okay. We cannot think when it comes to mankind, we must have the right view of man. So we cannot think in moral terms. The problem with man is not a moral problem. The problem with man is a spiritual problem. He is absolutely and universally dead toward God. Encompassed in the reality of his deadness. Only doing what spiritual deadness does. Trespasses and sins. This is the reflection of his deadness. This is what he does not to become dead, but this is what he does because he is dead. Trespasses and sins are the outworking of deadness. This is why it's oxymoronic for us as Christians to go on living in the things of deadness. We are alive. And so Paul is saying to us, we have to realize and understand this. Because when we understand this, we will worship God through living for God in thought and word and deed. Before we were ever saved by God, we were like every other person on the face of this planet. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And I emphasize once again, you notice that we were not dead because we committed sin. We're dead because we were in sin. So he isn't talking about doing sinful things. He's referring to the sphere of our very being. That is simply to say that we are not sinners because we sin, but rather we sin because our condition without Christ is that of being absolute sinners by nature. And so Paul uses some very strong words here. <clears throat> he says, although spiritually dead, we as sinners followed certain realities. And so he lists these three ways in which our spiritual condition of deadness without Christ is influenced. He says in verses 2 and 3 that we follow the world, the devil, and the flesh. You notice in which, he says, in your trespasses and sins, in which 
you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And of course the outcome of that very condition is that we are by our very nature children under the wrath of God, and we're all in the same boat. In other words, we all were walking corpses. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for that encouragement. You were a walking corpse. This is the only way of living the spiritually dead can live. The only way the spiritually dead can live is this way. It is according to the world, to the devil, and to their own flesh. This is the description of mankind without Jesus Christ. Without Christ, there is no ability. The only way we live is in an offense to the nostrils of God. That's what mankind is without His Son. We stink of spiritual death. Remember, when Joe and I were in Honduras several years ago, down seeing Ed. Ed was driving us on this country road up to one of the churches that he had planted. And we came around the corner and man, the stench of death hit our noses like nobody's business. And of course, it was a dead animal on the side of the road, but boy, it had been there and it was vile. This is us to God. This is us to God. We stink of spiritual death. That is simply to say that the unsaved sinner is trapped by nature to the very things that he is following after. And they are destroying him. What's the first one? The first is the world. The cosmos in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. The cosmos. That's the word used here. Cosmos. He isn't describing the physical creation in which we physically live, the cosmos around us. By the way, it's an interesting word because that's the basis for the word cosmetic, which many of you ladies use cosmetics and you put cosmetics on in order to bring all the cosmos in order. Bring it in order so that it looks good, right? That's what you look in the mirror and you go, oh, I'm going to put some here, put some here, and everything's going to come out looking good. That's the cosmos. Paul isn't describing the cosmos as the world around us. He's, he's not describing that physical creation. He's describing the world system. The world system, its values, its ways of life, its course. The word is used nearly 186 times in the New Testament. It's nearly all of the places that it's used. Its connection is with that which is evil. And so when it's connected with the word course here, it means the evil of this present world. The evil of this present world. In other words, the system of this world's existence. That's what it follows. That's what deadness follows. It's, it's a world of deadness. It's a, 
It's a system of deadness. It's, it's the world in which those without Christ live. The world constantly is in the process of bombarding us with its values. Everywhere we turn in this life, we are confronted with the values of this world. And they seem, at least from our perspective, because we have now Christ view of things, everything is degrading at a more rapid pace than we ever would have thought in our deadness. In fact, in our deadness, we would have embraced it as if it was right. Yet everywhere we turn, we are confronted with the ways and the loves of this world. And yet before, when we were dead, that's how we lived. Why? Because that's what the dead do. It is the spiritually dead who love the world. It is the spiritually dead who love the things in the world. John said in 1 John, do not love the world nor the things of the world and in the world. Why? Because death loves the things of death. You're not dead. You're alive. Stop playing in the cemetery of the world. Live as you are in Christ. And so those who are without Christ, those who have not been saved, not only are in the world, but they are willing captives of the social and value system of this world, which is inherently hostile to God. This is why when a Christian who claims to know Jesus Christ goes on living in the world like the world, we wonder, do they even know Jesus Christ? Because the dead love the dead. And if you're living, why do you love the dead? Why do you embrace the dead? Why do you go about comfortable with the dead things? Makes no sense. If you're alive in Christ, then come out of that and live as Christ has called you to live. That's who you were. That's not who you are now. The spiritually dead are totally dominated by the world. You're not to be. Paul says that's who you were. That's who you were. An important word. So past tense, that's who you were, implying that's who you are not now. <clears throat> so when you were dead, you were walking according to the course of this world, but that's not how you are to live now. But also, secondly, the dead are following after the devil. Verse 2 says, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. <clears throat> Bible clearly tells us in John's Gospel, John 12, verse 31, that Satan is the ruler of this world. The ruler of this world. <clears throat> Why? Because God has allowed that for a time that His glory and grace and mercy might be clearly seen Right, that will certainly then be the case. Satan will be the ruler of this world, as John's Gospel says, until the day Christ returns and throws him out. And so when Paul says that those without Christ are carrying out their lives according to the prince of the power of the air, I truly believe he's referring to the godless system that is perpetuated by Satan and the fallen angels or the demons. 
fact, it's referred to in chapter 6 and verse 12 as the spiritual forces of wickedness. Currently, they pressure and control every person who is unsaved. You say, did you say that right? Yes, I put it down just like that because I wanted to say it that way. They pressure and control every person who is unsaved. I believe many a person, even Christians, think too lightly of that reality. <clears throat> right? The devil and his demons are real, and they are not a small matter. In fact, 1 Peter 5.8 says he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Notice what Paul says here. The forces of darkness are working, notice, in the sons of disobedience. You notice that? They're walking according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan himself, according to his plan, his ways, his system. They are walking according to and by the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. We have to realize we're not talking about demon possession of every person who is unsaved. That's not what we're saying. But what we are saying is they are working in them by means of the cosmos, by means of the world, the course of this world in which they are living and loving because it is a world of deadness. So they are, in that sense, in the sons of disobedience to perpetuate the hatred of all that God is in Christ and all that He stands for. And the spiritually dead soul loves that. Satan, of course, is the prince of the power of this world system. And it's his system of influence that every unbeliever loves. Oh, certainly they may not raise their hand when someone says you love the system of that Satan has perpetuated in this world. Every unbeliever wouldn't raise their hand and say, yes, I love that. But because of their deadness and their ignorance to their own deadness, they love it and don't even realize it. Why? Because they share the same nature as he is. And because they share the same nature as him, they live in that same realm. It means, beloved, that while people would like to believe they are free and independent apart from God, they are not. In fact, they are totally dominated by the ungodly system of the spiritual forces of evil so that they might walk according to the course of this world. You say, in what? In the lusts of their flesh. What he says in verse 3, among them we too all formally lived. We lived in the lusts of our flesh. There is the, the definition, if you will, of the outworking of conforming and walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's working in those who are dead. They are living out the lusts of their flesh. In what way? Indulging the desires of their flesh and of their mind. In other words, everything goes. This is the unsaved world. This is what they love. They're controlled by the devil and live to the flesh. 
They live according to their own desires driven by spiritual death. Lust, epithumia, strong desire. That's the word. Strong desire of every kind. Not limited to just one certain kind of thing. So when you read the word lust, don't think of just simply a physical reality as if it's a sexual thing. It includes that and everything else that serves self. It is lust of the flesh, lust of self. A strong desire for self. And so any and every kind of sinfulness is not only possible, it is doable. That doesn't mean that each and every person will live out a potential evil in their heart to the fullest extent and to its horrific ends, but it does mean that each and every person is totally corrupt. They are totally capable. And so what is Paul saying here? Paul is saying, listen, before Jesus Christ, you were absolutely dead. Before Jesus Christ, it didn't matter who you are. You were universally dead and that everyone was dead. Everyone was absolutely dead and everyone was totally dead. So our will, our thinking, our actions... All an outworking of our deadness, and they all work to defy the will of God. So Paul says in verse 3, because of that, you were by nature children of wrath. You see, Paul can't get away from the absolute condition of the soul. It is dead. It is universal. It is total. It is who you are. And because of that nature, you're a child of wrath like all the rest. Paul says, we're no different than you, Ephesians. Gentiles and the Jews are no different. Paul says, listen, the Jews aren't any better than you. The Gentiles are not any worse than the Jews. We're all alike. We too were like just what I'm telling you. And so this here, beloved, is the tragic and judicial end of all who are in spiritual death valley. There is no escape. We are children of wrath. Everyone. Doesn't matter. Jew and Gentile alike. We are all sinners by nature. And because of our nature... We live in our trespasses and sins. We do the things that go against God. We all sinned in and with Adam before we were ever born. We are all guilty before God and we are the objects of His righteous wrath. Exactly what Paul was telling the Roman believers. Romans chapter 5. Verse 12 through 14, he said, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, he doesn't simply mean physical death, he means spiritual death, the condition of death, the absolute condition of the soul, death through sin. And so, death, that condition spread to all men because all sinned. All were there. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned. In other words, the, the consequence and reality of spiritual death reigned. From Adam to Moses, even over those who were sinning not like 
the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. You can't escape it just because you don't sin in action like somebody else. Just because you don't, you look around the world and say, I'm not as bad as that person. It doesn't matter. The condition's the same. It's totally deadness. What theologians call total depravity. Total depravity. Every part of us is tainted by sin. And so, when we speak of that reality, total depravity, we do not mean that all people will be equally evil in practice. When you hear someone say, we're totally depraved, don't get in your mind that that means that everyone is going to be equal in their evilness in practice. And we do not mean that humans are not capable of acting in some kind of humanly dignified way because of their deadness. What we mean is that there is no part of our nature, there's no part of our mind, no part of our will, no part of our emotions that is unaffected by the reality of sin. There is no part in us that might have a little light of life in the sphere of deadness. We are completely and fully dead. All of us without Jesus Christ is totally depraved. We are Children of wrath. It means that apart from Jesus Christ, we are totally lost. This is exactly what Paul said, which is exactly what the psalmist said. There is none righteous, not one. No one seeks after God. Don't get this notion in your mind that someone is seeking after God. Well, we say these little cliches, oh, they're close to coming to know Christ. Really? Really? How do you know that? Well, they're, they're interested in the things of, of the Bible. Well, they're only interested not because of something you did, not because of some cleverness upon you, not because of even a kindness from you. They, they're interested, if they're interested at all, because God is drawing them to Himself. Because only God can do that with the dead. The dead only seek that which is dead. So humanly speaking, nothing can be done. The dead cannot save themselves. And those who are in glory with Jesus Christ cannot go and somehow save the spiritually dead. We cannot come back to life and say, oh, I'm going to go help that person. God does not allow that. All the spiritually living can do who are here in Jesus Christ is tell them about Jesus Christ and pray that God would quicken them to life. That's it. And beloved, listen, the next two words are not simply grammatical connections in this in this nice moralistic speech by a man who lived a hundred years ago or, so, or, or thousands of years ago, the Apostle Paul. It's not just this little nice little way of trying to say, okay, I told you some bad stuff, now I want to add some good stuff so you'll start listening again. No, for those who are spiritually alive, it is these words right here that are the life-giving jolts of divine electricity upon the dead soul that revives the soul to new life so that it will believe. 
Without these two words, as we sit here tonight, we would still be in our sin without God and without hope. Paul is wanting us to understand the depths of this. Paul is wanting us to understand that without Christ, we are so far within Death Valley that there's no sense in which we even understand that there's the majestic heights of the spiritual Mount Whitney of God. But when we understand how dead we were, then we, we can live as God intended us to live in the heights of who we are in Christ. We cannot forget, beloved, that each and every day, each and every day, all of the blessings that we have in Christ were given to us while we were yet dead to God. Understand that. While we were yet in verses 1 to 3, of chapter 2, all of the blessings of chapter 1 were given to us in Christ. Is it any wonder that the Apostle Paul says it is to the praise of His glory? So next time when we come, we're going to get into the other side. But God. But God, all to the praise of His glory. This is who you were. This is who you are. Let's pray together. Father, oh, the blackness and blindness of each one of us in humanity thinking that somehow in our arrogance we could do something to bring ourselves to You or to show You something in us that is pleasurable that You would want. When all we could do was live in the deadness of our soul. All we could choose was the things of this dead world, the lusts of our flesh, the desires of our mind, everything that we would judge rightly in deadness was so wrong, only would produce more wrath, only conjure up from you what is deserved of all who reject you. And yet we see the majestic peaks of the majesty of your grace and mercy that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you granted to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, all of the glories that we saw, the majestic heights and vistas of chapter 1. We did not deserve it. And then in all of that, in order that we might realize those things, you opened our eyes to the truth. Oh, Lord, the wonder of your grace and mercy upon us. Lord, may we never forget that. May we realize the depth of it so that we would live according to it. 
May we understand the joy that it is to be in your family so that we would look at the things of this earth and the things of this world and not find our greatest pleasure here. But long for others to know our Savior. Long for others to be saved out of the death that they're in. Telling them of the great wonder of Jesus Christ because we know that it is the gospel of you. It is the good news of Jesus Christ that causes one to repent. You use it. It is your power unto salvation. So Help us be the proclaimers of the truth. The ones who set forth as your obedient children the truth of the gospel knowing that it takes your power, not us. We certainly, Lord, don't want to be unhelpful to others. But nothing is more helpful than the truth of the gospel. So help us proclaim that with boldness. Help us to live it with boldness. Be convinced of these things. Have a high view of you and a right view of man. That we might have the compassion of Jesus Christ for the loss. And so that you would be honored in everything that we say and do. All God's people said, Amen.